0: Welcome to the podcast. This is Fergus in Chicago. And this is a different episode than we might normally do. Uh, we typically invite a planner strategist to come on and tell us the story behind the creative strategy that led to particularly interesting work. But this is a little different. This is what we might title a bonus episode where we just talk about the practice of planning with uh, Rob Campbell. And Rob is head of strategy uh, for EMEA. At uh, RGA in London, that's just a bunch of acronyms shoved together right there. But um, I've, um, I've followed uh, Rob for a number of years. If you have uh, not been following his blog, you really should. It's terrific. It's called uh, "The Musings of an Opinionated Sod, SOD." You can uh, subscribe to that, and he writes about culture. He writes about his own life and does it very honestly, and uh, it makes him appear to be a very likable guy. Of course, people who work with him, he would say, probably would disagree, but uh, I've certainly admired him for a number of years. Uh, Prior to working at RGA, he worked for many years at Wyden in Shanghai, and he ran uh, the Nike business and a bunch of other major brand work in that part of the world. I think he's been in London for uh, maybe maybe a year or two now, after a short uh, visit to Deutsche so uh, well worth subscribing to that. Um, he, another thing that's well worth watching as sort of a uh, follow-up to this conversation is a presentation that he and uh, Martin Weigel made at uh, Con this past year. It was uh, It's a Warwick presentation uh, video. I think it's behind a paywall, though. But if you can get it, uh, certainly take a look at it. Uh, I think it's around the concept of, I think I think it's titled chaos, but it's at least around the concept of chaos being something that we need to embrace in planning. And that predictability and process and structure have a place, but that chaos is really where great things happen. So it's well worth uh, listening to that. Another topic they talk about, and one that's underscored in my conversation with Rob, is uh, what uh, uh, he and Martin sort of uh, title as the edge effect. And that in planning, that you need to be on the edge, leading edge of culture. And the edge effect is sort of visualized the way it's, it's, uh, the way it's described as sort of the spot where the open prairie meets the forest. And uh, it's at that edge of where the forest meets the prairie that the most interesting things are happening, where there's new growth, where there's new dynamic things happening, where there are uh, new species growing. And so that's the way Martin Weigel describes it. And I think it's a really nice way of thinking about uh, where we can focus as planners. Now, that's not to say that, uh, that that's the only, only place where great insights are formed, but it's definitely where cultural observations can be noticed and certainly places where there's a chance for those, for those new uh, observations to catch fire but you can also root uh, your plan and your strategy and product related issues. There's other ways to do it, but um, I think Rob makes, as he makes clear in his conversation, he's a strong believer in this concept of the edge effect and that the edge effect, if you, can, if you can connect it to your brand and you can exploit it in the right way for your brand, that you can create culture. So a conversation with Rob Campbell, from RGA London and it's going to be a general conversation about planning. I think it was, uh, it was great to talk with him and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome Rob Campbell from RGA in London.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah we had a chance to connect last week and you know I kind of feel because I've, I've, watched, uh, I've watched a number of your speeches and follow you uh, on social media so I feel like I know you although we've actually never met so you don't know anything about me but I know about you.
1: Well you know I know a bit about you I've got Italian blood so a bit of the mafia side of me but um yeah <laughs> uh, I appreciate you being interested in anything I've got to say so thank you
0: Yeah you're welcome So um I've I just actually listened earlier this morning I, re- I listened to it once again to the speech or the presentation that you and Martin gave at cons and 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 I I'm, I'm I I loved it I think uh it's great to hear guys like you talk about it in such an original way in in terms of what we need to do differently in planning and i think there's an awful lot of planners that are sitting around the world in offices and they're kind of feeling disillusioned and um, i think mark pollard tries to talk to that a lot in his podcast um but i'm i'm curious and i think you're doing it with your gaslighting project too but um what do, you, what do you have to say to these people that are sort of looking around going, how am I, how am I going to be able to do what I know I want to do, but I, uh, the constraints of it just seem to be this, you know, so, uh, uh, so much against me?
1: It's hard without sounding like an absolute prick. Um, I, think, I think, and I've been there, you know, where you're looking for validation, so you're looking for what other people have done. Um, Almost to like say, well, that's the way to do it. But what you end up doing is not expressing your true opinion, and you end up sounding like a a bad copy. I think part of it is like find your voice. The other part is just try it. And I, I obviously I'm so old that you know it was probably before anyone was born, which is so depressing. Um, but I've always kind of just gone. I'm going to try something and ask for forgiveness, mainly because I will make sure that what I do brings answers, what they want, but in a way they never imagined. But I've always gone, I'm just going to try this. And I've been quite a pain in the ass to a large amount. I just feel that we've lost that spirit. And I feel that we we play to be in the spotlight rather than play to help make amazing work. And I think one of the problems I have with a lot of, a lot of the opinions that are out there, of which I'm one of them, I totally get that, is that it rarely is about the work. It's, and if it is, it's from such an academic perspective. You can tell they're not fans of creativity. They're academics of advertising. And I do think they're quite different. But you can only control what you can control. And if you're not bringing something new, then you have to acknowledge that you're being complicit in it rather than just being able to blame everyone else.
0: So why do you think that as an industry, we allow ourselves to be forced to sort of perform under debilitating time constraints? Is that is that a reality at RGA that you have to face also? Was it at Widen? Because I think so many of us are feeling like, how can how can we perform uh, to a standard we're satisfied with? Or how can we break new ground when we have to have it in a week?
1: I mean, without doubt. um you need time to, to think and explore. But let me tell you, you know, in the, at the time I was in China, um, which was a long time and the, arguably probably one of the best times of my life, you didn't have clients that gave give you a long time to do stuff. So for us, it was like, how can we ensure that we can collapse time but maximize the opportunities and the qualities? And so from my perspective, it was very much about trying stuff and and enabling teams to explore stuff. And often I'd put two planners on the same project, but in competition to each other. And they would only have an initial period where we would come back and start going, what's interesting here? Everything was designed to get to interesting and depth and breadth as quickly as possible. Um, because we weren't given those timeframes, but we had to be inventive in that. And I think there's a, don't get me wrong, there's a real importance in rigour um, but really can be done in many ways. And, I, and now, arguably, we have so much information at our fingertips, but we, we lack the nuance of authentic subcultural viewpoints. That right. we know lots, but we say even less. I, I just think that that's why, for me, my greatest learning has been having bosses, quite frankly, that even when they bollocked me for doing something I, didn't, I thought was good, but wasn't. Appreciate the fact I was trying to get to somewhere new, as opposed to just trying to get somewhere quick, and I think it's an attitudinal shift rather than necessarily just about um, processes and systems impacting us.
0: So I assume then that you face the same realities that are a set of circumstances that that many planners do, which is the idea that they would love to get out and uh, be in the jungle versus in the zoo, but there there there's there's no time for them to, they feel there's no time for them to do that is that something that you insist that planners do and that are in your team or do you just and do you ensure that there's time to do that it doesn't have to be weeks of course it can be a, it could be a day but but there's time no, the,
1: the, I think the problem that a lot of people have is they they equate talking to culture as needing to have scalability of opinion. And my viewpoint has always been when you talk to the the leading or even bleeding edge of a subculture, it gives you the nuances and understanding that allows you to impact the work that will pull the masses up. And so for me it's not necessarily about how many people you talk to, it's about who are the right people to talk to. And I think yeah. a lot of people see it as I need to talk to lots of people. And then of course you're not going to have time. And of course it's hard. And people go, well, we've got all the research on this. And I go, yes, you've got directional research, but this is also all about the nuance. I, I am obsessed with trying to create the new normal. Always have my whole career. And I believe, and we talk about it in our chaos um, presentation, about the edge effect. Like yeah. the sprouts of what's happening rather than what's happened with the view that that is where culture will ultimately be setting its own natural direction. And how do you get to see that and get ahead of it and validate it and help create it, as opposed to just the broad masses? I need our clients to be more successful than they hope to be. But I believe that that's done by being a beacon to where culture wants to go, rather than just trying to be a a one-off attraction. And to do that, you have to find a space to really get into what actually is happening which which of course takes time but I tell you just doing it for one day is better than doing it for nothing
0: right right and I mean the reality is that when you're if you're if you've got your if you've got your mind on culture it uh, tw- you know seven days a week as a member of of a society that so many of those things that you're aware of that are happening outside of a particular business category are massively relevant to that category so you're you're probably able to bring that perspective a lot faster because it's really about common themes and culture throughout that, that have an impact on all business.
1: But it's also how you look at the world, and it's like, and the other thing is, I don't look at research in that respect for giving me answers, but giving me texture and nuance. Yeah, and a lot of people are looking at it for answers, and so then you're you're going down a path of problem versus solution, like an engineering problem. I don't I don't believe that that gets to the best work that actually people want to be a part of that feels born from inside the culture you want to really be uh, resonant with. But it's, but, you know, there's no single way of doing stuff.
0: You know, you made a, you made a good point um, before, I think, I think it was one that you mentioned in that presentation I referred to earlier, where, um, where the question was, do you know, do clients want to be comfortable um, and do clients, I'm paraphrasing this, do uh, clients want to be comfortable and that process allows clients to feel that way? Uh, and I think your point was that in essence, clients are bored and they want you to be original. And when they come to an agency, they don't want to be served up the same things that they can get served up in their own organization. So doing things even in a somewhat unorthodox way, it should be expected.
1: Well, I mean, what the best thing I ever heard was from a, a very, very senior Nike client, old Nike client of mine. Um, and he said to me, Rob, middle management will want to be right. Senior management will want to know how to be better. And yeah. I've always taken that to task. If you're going, going back and just telling them what they already know, um, and sometimes there's a value in that if you can say, well, you know this, but actually this actually is where it's breaking out. and Maybe you don't know it. That's fine. But it should be about moving things forward. Because if you're not moving things forward, I believe that you're literally going backwards. And our job is to, you know, the speed and evolution of culture and technology. Um, I believe that you've got to play to where culture's heading, not where it is. And that means ultimately doing new things in new ways to help give you perspective on how to look at the world.
0: So, when you write a brief, have you already talked with your creative team and and sort of collaborated in what ultimately becomes the brief, or do you more do you sort of own it as a planner?
1: No, no, no. It's uh, my job is to help creative people create work that's even they had not originally thought about. So, yeah, I always talk to the creatives. We have, to, and it's an ongoing basis. I mean, the thing that I, I, I've, I've always pressed, and I pressed at RGA and that Wyden and everywhere have been is our job is to be useful to the creativity being made. It is not to be the judge of it. Um, and so it's very easy to tear things down. And sometimes things are really off, but ultimately our job is to help build things up, is to acknowledge any creative in any field, whether they're doing experience design or UX or campaigns or whatever you want. There is a, there's a fragility, that, there's a vulnerability of what they're putting forward and we have
0: to respect that so do you you know there's different points of view in planning about um what the what the output from planning is right so some people talk about it in terms like insight and observation that your goal is to to bring that perspective on culture that perspective as in, in the shape of an observation maybe it's rooted in data maybe it's rooted in human behavior maybe it's rooted in the product wherever it comes from that's your role the other party say well, you've got to go a step beyond that with a, a kind of a creative thought starter. And then I've also heard you say that you don't want to solve the problem for creative. Um, where what's, what's your thought?
1: Um, I think you've got to identify what the problem is. I think you've got to understand that from, you know, where culture or the audience they need to to connect with, to pull more people in, where their heads are at and what that tension is. And then a point of view that allows to set a direction of where where that problem is to allow the creatives the freedom to explore and answer it in the way that they think is going to be interesting. Um, my job is not to solve the problem for them and then ask them to execute it because then, then I'm, I'm not being useful to the creative process. The beauty of the people I work with at RGA at Widen, anywhere, is they think differently to me. Um, so, giving them the problem in a way that inspires them to think about it in in different ways—that's when magic happens. Giving them an answer and saying execute it—I hope they punch me in the face.
0: <laughs> so you don't you don't believe in a kind of a a, a creative thought starter?
1: I mean, there, there are ways. As I said, I'm a big believer in points of view rather than. Creative thought starters. But in the process, if you have a relationship with creative people, you're having discussions. Um, but I mean, sometimes it's like these are territories that might be worth us exploring for these reasons. Yeah. But I'm not going to say make this ad. (laughs) I might, might, even if I have ideas in it. But then once they start that process, my job is to help them in making sure it's as great as it could be, as authentic as it can be, in always being useful so that um Every stage, we're working away. So as they've got something, go, okay, I'm going to now go away and help find more information to allow that bit to be even sharper or tighter or more raw or whatever it is. I, a lot of people, when they say they want to be part of the creative process, what they actually mean is they want to be part of the creative team. Their job right. is not to be part of the creative team. Their job is to serve the creativity and be useful to the creative team. Yeah, so I've for always, me, it's always
0: that. I've always felt that some of the... Some of the greatest strategists or planners are frustrated creative people, and that that gets in the way because they are they're already thinking tactically because they just they want to get moving, they don't know where to they don't know where to stop. Uh,
1: I I would say that there's far fewer amazing planners who could be amazing creatives than there are amazing creatives who could be amazing planners. There's a lot of creatives that are phenomenal planners. Yeah, they just don't know it. But there's a lot of planners who want to be creatives and they aren't. That doesn't mean they don't have valuable ideas or insight. But it's a different, it's a different skill set. And some people have got it, and some haven't. I've done stuff that I genuinely feel has been great, and I've done some stuff that's a disaster. And I'm very fortunate. I'll have plenty of people that go, "Rob, that's fucking bollocks,"
0: and I respect <laughs> that. Um, and and that being what like did that being having a point of view or an idea or or, or, or create a creative idea or what
1: stuff that I mean, I'm a big believer in creativity more than advertising, uh, because creativity can encompass everything. And I'm you know I'm quite obsessed with how people are using platforms or UX. That's why in our chaos thing I talk about the Tesla insane button, yeah, because I think it's I think that is an incre- incredible insightful way that has helped drive the brand, but also fundamentally overcome an insight about what their audience might fear about it. Um, But yeah, for me, it's like a planner's job is to be useful and bring new things to the table and authenticity. It's not to also do the ads as well.
0: Yeah. So did you say that that what people might be fearful of, is is that what you said regarding the Tesla button?
1: Yeah, I mean, my view is that the the reality of it is when Tesla came out with an electric car, um, people who buy Teslas are not buying it for the environment, predominantly. Um, right. And so there was this, if you were going to buy something new that was like the, the, the space rocket of cars, what's the one thing you would fear? And that would be other people going, yeah, that's cool, but it's slow. And... So how do you get around that aspect? Well, having a sports mode isn't enough. All cars have a sports mode. So what's the best way to help people go, this space rocket um, isn't as slow as a golf cart, but it's as fast as a space rocket? Yeah, yeah.
0: So did they, did they, was that a marketing program or was that just a UX uh, feature within the car? Did they market messaging around that?
1: Uh, well, they did the films, which was the, the acceleration, which was around Insane Mode. So they, they knew what they had.
0: I've noticed with you in general, you don't talk about the work that you do for clients. Um, you, you have a perspective on planning. So I, and be, because this is a podcast that's primarily a, about, the, uh, about the stories behind creative strategies that have been developed, I, I wanted to push you a little bit here to talk about some examples that are a really great reflection of, of your philosophy manifest in a client's work. And, you know, and I, I wanted to open up for you. I've got one or two I could talk about with you, one of them being probably Virgin Atlantic Lounge. But I wanted to open it up to you to give us, and everybody who's listening, a real sense of how your approach to planning manifests in unique ways and unique creative ideas for clients.
1: Well, I mean, the reason I don't specifically talk about the work I've done is because I'm only part of it. And, you know, a lot of people claim it. But I... I always talk about the work and because I think that's what we're here for. And I I get quite frustrated when people talk about models and it's more about how to be accurate or intelligent rather than create something that gives a position in culture that pulls people in. But I mean, my, my perspective and I'm now at an age where my success, for want of a better word, comes from seeing my teams be part of work. That truly is different. And so, for me, I mean, the way that I look at it is my job is to create the space um, for them to do the best work of their life and give them space to be vulnerable, quite frankly. And then, in areas where we're helping the clients understand why that works, there is to be the, for want of a better term, bodyguard almost, to ensure that, that that thinking, that beautiful thinking, is given the purity that sets up. Doing work that is provocative, resonant with culture, and creating change rather than just repeating knowledge. Um, right. So, but in all aspects of that, it's always been about fundamentally getting people out to spend time in culture and understand what's the real nuance around stuff. So, we did some work when I was in China around Heineken, and you know Heineken had this cities um, campaign. It was. It was built on the idea that friends are simply people, um, strangers are simply friends you haven't met yet, and so we spent a lot of time, really just going out and understanding what does spontaneity mean in a culture that doesn't really like to be spontaneous um, because of the fear of you know what might happen, and that really led us to being able to come back and say to make this work, we have to understand there's a fundamental difference here between the unknown and the unexpected, um, unknown Mm -hmm. means that you don't know how to handle a situation. Unexpected gives you enough of a framework that will allow you to step into something you weren't expecting to do. And that allows us to, from a creative perspective, open the doors up to what could happen versus uh, fit scaring people off because they don't know how to deal with it. And it led to, it was mental, actually. Um, We did this campaign where in China, there's a lot of uh, street hairdressers. And basically, we organised it that these people would have half their hair cut. And then they were kind of told that if you want the other half, you have to go to this place. And so it led them to a place where they went in. And as they sat in the chair, actually everything changed. And it was based on a roller coaster that took them through different cities as part of the Cities Campaign. And this, it was mental. And we built it. I mean, it wasn't an, it wasn't an ad. It was a physical like we created a roller coaster in this building it was madness but it came from
0: (laughs) and you shot it all i assume or what yeah Mm -hmm. yeah we
1: shot it all as well yeah and it's like it all came from the fact that to get people in that culture to embrace something that's like very different you have to give enough of a context they they understand to feel comfortable take that step forward that to me led to work we would never have made had we not done that
0: I wondered if you could get kind of didactic with us here and could get really granular. I'm going to just give you a scenario and I'd love to, to you to tell me what you would do. Right. And it, in simple terms, you get an RFP it's for a fashion brand uh, apparel and you've got five days. And let's say you've got, you've got five days for your team to your, your planning team to come up with a perspective on that. And uh, my question is, what do you do? Specifically, what do you do? Where do you start? What do you do and where do you, uh, well, that's it.
1: Well, I would identify five to 10 key questions that I'd want clarity from the client straight away. Um, and I would want that answer within 24 hours. From there, I would be making sure that I have a real understanding of competitor, aspect not because i want that to define what we do but just so we can actually understand the context of the world they're playing in i would want to have a real understanding of the audience that they are talking about and to identify whether that is the right audience and who are the biggest influences in that audience i'd like to see where in terms of that audience the expressions of creativity are coming from and what's driving that Um, and I would really be spending a lot of time in making sure that we understand what is going on in culture as regards fashion or identity or individuality, like fundamental elements that are driving that. Then I would pull everyone together and we'd start looking at where, where there's the tension between where the core of culture is versus what's happening and where the, this brand could ultimately either help play a role in validating it, liberating it, or fighting against it. And then I'd start developing where would be some strands of strategy that could lead to creativity that will change the way people think, feel, act, or believe. That's probably a very quick overview with a bit more time I'd think. But, yeah, it would be, yeah, what's the real problem? Well, clarity on the situation, what's the real problem? Real understanding the audience, understanding the culture of that audience or the culture of apparel or fashion, um, and from there start identifying what's the cultural tension we're facing, what's the the truth about this brand and its role and the the position it could have in culture, and then where's the creativity opportunities that could uh help the client in a way that actually uh culture would want to be part of rather than be told to be part of.
0: Do one of the things you mentioned was that you in identifying the the uh the uh the people that this brand would be targeting that you needed to validate that in some way what did you mean by that you need to validate that's the right audience
1: well because quite often a lot of clients want mass as opposed to as opposed to from my perspective how culture operates which is understand the core and it pulls people up so like when i helped uh spotify in japan You know, obviously they wanted lots of people (laughs) to sign up to the service. And this is the country where vinyl still was outselling, um, well, definitely streaming services. And there were a million streaming services. And what was interesting to us was vinyl was outselling, uh, well, still a major player. Uh, And everyone, all the streaming services, a lot of them are very Japanese. So, you know, what is a Swedish uh, Western music streaming thing going to offer them? And then where they were Western, I think Google had uh, 30 million tracks or something, which was basically saying, you're bound to find something you like in here. It was like, well, how can Spotify have a a real value in a market that's cluttered and weird? And so from our perspective, it was about really understanding uh, the leading edge of music fan. Not the bleeding edge in that case, but like people who believe that they live for music. We spend a lot of time on that. And then we overlaid that with the cultural value system of Japan and how those people fit in or don't fit in, and the role that Spotify could have and its authenticity to use it. Because I remember in the first line in the brief, I said Spotify was not created by uh, men in suits who ultimately use it to sell another product. It was created by people who love music and will only do that. And it was like there was an authenticity in that. And from there, it led to this sense of what it means, to, what music means, but how people in music fans ultimately are seen by Japanese culture at large. and But when it came down to it, there was all these values that were really powerful that would pull people up. But for us, that's what I meant. It wasn't going, how do we get as many people as quickly as possible to like it? It was like, how do we actually get the most influential people to buy into it? Because that will pull everyone else up. And that's what I mean about validating it.
0: So when you look at, when you you talk about leading edge and, and subcultures, how do you know which subculture is the the right one is it intuitive is is do you feel that there's only really one subculture in a category or or in a uh, in a section of no, culture
1: no if if you're if you're a sports brand, then it's going to be people who who would maybe identify themselves as athletes that their the way that they live is through the lens of being like an athlete when we were doing a German sports car brand in China, um, they were selling themselves on being luxury, which is the the lazy person's way in China. Everything is about status. But what was really interesting was this car was built for performance. Um, It cost a lot of money because it was built for performance versus status. But what we identified was there was no performance car culture in China, nothing at all. So what we thought was going to be really interesting was, well, our opportunity is to create it because not only does that differentiate immediately it's the authenticity of what this brand is. But it's like, I mean, there's conversations along it, but it's, I, I find that the easiest part, the, the bit is understanding the nuances. So it feels like it's from an insider rather than an observer because I tell you, people can tell if you're full of shit very, very quickly. And and the best bit is they don't tell you. So uh, they are happy to watch you just burn. So that's why I have people who have a really varied team from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, And we use, you know, I've always used what I call informants who are not specialists but are part of culture in different ways who can really make sure that we are we know where it's heading rather than where it is and can give us the nuance that spots the difference between someone who's trying to be something versus someone who genuinely is. And that, for me, that comes from spending time out of the office, not just spending time reading about them in the office. One of my team here did this amazing project for Nike and how he approached it, he's an amazing photographer, then he looked into the records of what used to be in places that he photographed looked at the difference in house prices between then and now, where people would do sport, really gave a context of like, this is what's happening with gentrification. This is what's happening with people who want to be sports. This is the opportunity for Nike. Like he did it in a totally different way. Nice. Great. It's leading to amazing work. That is what... So when you said, what, where does a planner's job end? The planner's job ends on the work that is created. Not the insight. Not to deck, they're parts of that journey. It's the work that is created, whatever that might be. But where it gets pissy for me is when people go, job done, I did the insight. Or or I did some creative territories. Yeah, great. How are you being useful to making the work, adding to it, enhancing it, helping sell it? That is what we should be focused on, nothing else. And there's too much talk about process or language and not about what is amazing creativity. And there's a few people out there, everyone wants to do it, but there's a few who really do it. Spend time getting creative taste. Look into the backgrounds of stuff. Look into who's actually being creative in in fashion, in music, in tech. Like get your taste up, but don't sit there just going, my goal is a great insight written this way. Because quite frankly that's boring to everybody.
0: It seems to me that the spirit of what you're talking about is to always be rooted in people's lives.
1: I believe culture defines everything. Um, And so if you understand, as I said, the the core of a subculture, where they're going, what they're doing, then it pulls everyone else in. If you don't do that, you're talking at people. And Nike, who I still work on and worked on for Way too long uh, for, for everybody probably um, we've always been about understanding the you know what an athlete is always it's you know some of the best work I've done or been part of or seen people do has been someone who can actually really understand what it means to be an athlete and that's why when I was hiring planners for Nike whether it was at wide RGA, one of the first things is are you an athlete like do you see the world as an athlete sees them? I mean, uh, Paula Bloodworth, who now is the uh, global head of strategy at Wyden on Nike. You know, I, I hired her originally and I put her to Helen back, but she was an athlete and you could tell in the way she writes, the way she sees things, because it has to feel like it's been born from inside the culture for the rest of the culture to want to come in. If it feels like it's come from the observer of a culture, half the time you miss the nuance anyway. So yeah, it's always, if if a company's success is ultimately deemed on helping get more people to use it in whatever way it is, as I said, from UX to ad campaigns, well, you better understand the people. I don't understand those that basically try and do everything they can, but not interact with reality.
0: One of the other things that you talk about is how best practices are sort of handcuffing everybody and leading to very vanilla outputs. Tell me a little bit about more about the, the fact that best practices dilute outputs.
1: If you want to create the future, but you only want to use the rules of the past, you're never going to create the future. Yeah. Um, and inherent in that is obviously you know, innovation only happens if you're willing to take a risk. Nobody wants to be stupid with that. And for me, that's what the power of like research and insight does because it minimises the chance for total failure. It doesn't guarantee success by any stretch. But if you're trying to leap, there isn't anything. But it minimises it minimizes that risk because you understand where people really are looking for and what, where they're going. But for me, if you just use the old rules, as there's a lot of value and rigour in that. But if you are rigid to that, then you can't often... Create new, just create a better now,
0: yeah, it's interesting to me because I think that there is and it's 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 actually a really terrible situation which is there's there's so few agencies out there that have a set of principles they stand behind and and it's so important that they do that because you know it just sort of draws clients the right type of client in and I think widen i'm a, i'm I don't know the r g a culture uh, our reputation as much as I might know widens, and I think about widen. As being one where the entire industry, business, and 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 marketing world knows what to expect when they go to widen, they don't go in there saying what they uh, saying what they want the shop to do in terms of tactically, they go in there expecting the unexpected, and that is so rare that uh, unfortunately we're sort of led like dogs on a leash by by the clients that were supposed to be inspiring. Mm.
1: I, mean, I mean, obviously I was at one for a very long time and I loved that place and always will. But there were definitely times where people loved the idea of widening, but they didn't like the reality when we got into it. And you know, there's an element of that definitely with RGA, but we often, you know, again, it's like attracting clients and saying, help us be better as opposed to just make this. Um, But yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's I like working at places where people come for as much for our perspective on the world as what we do in it. And yeah, yeah. and I think that's what's lacking a lot—a point of view on where the world's going. Because the reality with RGA and with Wyden, and you know, lots of you know, whether it's Adam and Eve or whoever. Um, Pentagram—it's it, the secret sources, really talented people who sweat the details and work hard. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that others aren't doing that, um, but it's not like there's a They—that's they, the that's the founding principle, built on the fact that like widely it believes creativity can solve everything. The work comes first. It's always been Dan in uh, Dan in particular's mantra. And for us, you know it's quite funny we've got a, a, a relatively new expression of what is our internal calling. And it's like make a more human future. And that can sound really lofty, but what I, what I personally love about it is, you know, RGA probably more than any other company fuses creativity and technology together. And that's, that's yeah. why I came here. I love the idea that I could be part of something that will outlive me basically. Um, and, but when you talk about technology, often you talk about efficiency and optimization and mechanical engineering where where the people are seen almost as a an inconvenience. But this the whole sense of a more human future for us is like how can creativity and technology help brands by actually really being really being uh, useful?
0: Rob Campbell had a strategy EMEA at uh, RGA in London. What a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for your right. time Thank today. you
1: so much. I really appreciate your time.
0: And we'll see everybody in the next episode.